0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 43, and the quote of the day is from Maya Angelou, who unfortunately passed away this morning. She said, music was my refuge. I could crawl into the space between the notes and curl my back to loneliness. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals, information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource podcast. And it was definitely not my intention to start off the podcast on a somber note about the passing of Maya Angelou. But I wanted to pay homage to her because she was such an amazing poet and author. And the least I could do was to use a quote of hers in the beginning of the podcast. So that one was for Maya Angelou. I hope you all enjoyed it and let's get into this interview that we have today we have Andy Burton from the John Mayer band he plays keyboards in the John Mayer band and Andy is it turns out is a local dude he live he actually has a studio right above mine here in Hoboken and uh we've been trying to hook up this interview and it turns out he was right above me the whole time didn't even know which is awesome and we're going to get into this interview about You know, we're going to talk about what it's like to play with drummers and what drummers should be thinking about while they're playing with other musicians and not just playing for themselves. And you also hear what he looks for in a drummer. And he really gets into this whole thing about knowing where your strengths are and knowing what your talent level is and assessing your talent level to see if you're suited better to be a player or if you're seated, suited better to be in the music industry doing something else as a manager or something like that. So it's really interesting to hear how he feels about musicians and whether or not, you know, they should actually be players or not. So you'll definitely get that information in this interview. On a quick note, I'm giving away a 8-inch Bosphorus splash symbol. they were generous enough to donate two of those and right now we're going to give away one if you sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com you'll automatically be entered to win an eight inch splash from bosphorus cymbals which is awesome of them to do and the cymbals sound amazing so all you have to do is sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com like i said you'll automatically be entered to win and let's get in this interview i don't want to take up any more of your time mr andy burton Andy, thank you so much for for doing this today, man. I really do appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. It's it's actually odd to find out that uh, that we were trying to line up this interview and we both have a have a space like right on top of each other in the same building.
1: I know, that's crazy. Didn't
0: even didn't even know it. So it's good to uh, it's good to connect with you, especially since you're since you're a local guy. Oh yeah. So I always like to get, in every interview that I do, I always like to get the backstory of how people got into playing, mm-hmm. um, you know, because everybody has a different t- story. Some people grew up playing music, some people's families were musicians, and some people were like, oh, I didn't start till I was 20. You know, so what's your story? How did you get into playing, and, and how, did you, uh, how did you get the bug to play?
1: Um, I think, well, it, it definitely was, I definitely come from a musical family. Um, um, it's really on both sides of my family, but um, my mother uh, is an accomplished musician, too. She uh, played piano, violin, and bassoon. Oh, wow. And sang in the Robert Shaw Chorale when she was a young girl. Hmm. Um, went to the high school of music and art. Although um, well, she became a psychiatrist, uh, but she always... And her mother was a piano teacher, so um, I still have her Steinway. I have a 1941 Steinway, wow um, which is in my house now. Which was my grandmother's that's awesome which is really awesome yes it's a wonderful thing um and uh, so and i have two sisters that went into music classical music i have one sister amy who is an opera singer and a uh, very accomplished opera singer um and my other sister is a professor of music at bu Oh, okay um so uh Definitely a lot of music in the early part of my life. Mm-hmm. A lot of musicals. I went to Manhattan School of Music as part of their uh, uh, youth program on Saturdays as a kid. It was basically instead of Little League, that's what I did right. as, a, as, a, as a kid. Um, and I was studying ear training and theory, singing in a choir, piano lessons, cello. I played a lot of cello as a kid mm-hmm. also. I wish I kept it up. Yeah, I don't play it now, but. Um,
0: it's funny that you know, looking back at the time, you're probably like, I I'm never, what, what, I don't need this. I'm never going to use this. And then you look back and, or, you know, looking back now, you're like, man, I wish I would have stayed. I played piano for 10 years. Yeah. And You still I mean, have any chops? Nothing. Nothing. Like, I mean, I played recitals, everything. And classical, now. Classical, obviously. Classical. Yeah, I played yeah. some classical stuff. And, you know, now I just, I, in my defense, though, I haven't actually sat down and tried to read, you know, and It'll play. Come back. This, it
1: and, would come back to you. Yeah. Some of it would would come back if you wanted, if you put the time in, it would come back. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, let's see, what was I going to say about that? Oh, as far as cello goes, yeah. Um, I progressed fast enough on the piano that it was kind of an instant gratification thing. It was like, you know, when you first play a piano, you hit one key and it already sounds like a piano. Even if you don't really know how to play it, you're at least already sounding like something, right. whereas on a cello, any string instrument, you know, when you first start playing, it's a god-awful sound. Right, you right. Know, it takes a while. You have to suck for a while.
0: Just or to get a note you, out. Just
1: to get a note out, and that was, I never achieved that sort of beautiful, mellifluous cello sound. I hadn't quite achieved it, and I was just progressing so much on the piano that it just kind of, I just practiced for a couple of hours on the piano. Do I want to put that same amount of time in on cello? I didn't have the motivation, right. honestly. So, I mean, I, now I wish I had. <laughs> You're like this is this is easy, man. I'll just play the piano. It was, it just came to me more easily, and it feels like my instrument. Right. I mean, it feels like the keys are where I belong, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, So, how old were you when you started playing?
1: Oh, three or four years old. Really? Piano? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was picking out things on the piano as a, as a little kid, you know? Um, and so... My mother noticed that and put me in and got got me music lessons right away. Right. So, I would say you know my first lessons were probably at age five or six.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: You know. Um, But yeah, I was was probably one of the first things I was able to do as you know was play the piano. Mm -hmm. So,
0: it's interesting because you know so many people that that I've interviewed have similar stories to yours that they started when they were three or they started you know ever since I can remember I was playing. And right. then, you know, like I interviewed Rick Morata, who played on all these Steely Dan records and everything, and he's right. like, I started when I was 20. Right. You know, which is amazing to me, the, the, the large amount of time that some people put in and other people put no time in. Not, not that Rick didn't put any time in, but the fact that he could start at 20, you know. And everybody has their own path, but it's always interesting to me to hear when people got started.
1: I heard Frank Zappa didn't start playing guitar until he was about 20. Really? That's what I heard. Well, and- Pretty amazing player. Yes. Yeah.
0: There's a story of well, it's not a story. I mean, it's the truth. Mike Clark, the uh, drummer, he played with Herbie Hancock and right. you know and all these people. He started playing, and the first day that he played, he went down to a club with his dad and played a tune, the first day.
1: He must have already had something <laughs> going on, you know. <laughs>
0: That's just an amazing story to me that he's like, his dad brought him down and he said he sat behind the kit and his dad brought him down to this bar and was like, you got to play.
1: He must have already known the kid must have been tapping things and he must have clearly showed, you, right. know, the, you know. Oh boy, did he play great too. Yeah, it's amazing. I've uh, I've talked to him on the phone before. I just told him, I love your playing. Yeah, yeah. he's,
0: he's a monster, <laughs> man. Super cool guy too. You go. So how do you, how did you bridge the gap between starting to play and, and going through, through high school and college and everything and saying, okay, I'm gonna do this professionally? And at what age did you realize that this is what I'm gonna do, this is gonna be my career?
1: Well, I would say I noticed that it was some, it, I noticed it, was, it started calling me, so to speak, around age 12. I mean, I was always, music was a really, really fun thing to do mm-hmm. all the time. You know, it was always, oh, you know, I get to play the piano music. Um, I never, I, when I, um, let see, when I was uh, at age 12, um, my parents were going to send me to this summer camp, and I was looking, I remember looking at the activities that they had, and I saw a rock band, and I was like, rock band? I, so that was the first time, I, I, that's, I, I distinctly remember that as like the first time, I didn't know if I was qualified, I think I could do this, I don't know, could I play in a rock band, it sounds, it sounds like it would be great. And so I, I just remember that feeling of, of about playing, and then from that point on, I think I formed my first band, I was in eighth grade, so a little bit after that. Um, and let's see, what else? rephrase the question a little bit again. Well, I was just curious on
0: uh, one, when you realized that that's exactly what you wanted to do for For, a career and then professional
1: part. And then how did you
0: actually, because you know, a lot of people, there's a disconnect between I want to be a professional musician. How do I do it? You know, and there's, I think that there's a, a big gap between that and saying, you know, how am I going to figure out how to do this as a career? Because as everybody knows, it's not the easiest, it's not the easiest career choice. To no, make it isn't you know, and so I'm always interested to hear how people bridge that gap and how people made it into a career rather than just doing it as a as a hobby or being a weekend warrior.
1: Well, I would say I wrestled with that issue for many years. You know, I mm-hmm. just knew that I wanted to do it, and um, I guess I mean I I, uh, I deferred going into the professional music workforce. You know, after after high school. I was expected to go to college, right? And uh, and I made it into Harvard, so I decided, you know, I, all right, I'm going. I'm not going to say no to that, right? You know? I was good at school. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had a lot. I was, you know, I was an all around stu- good student, and I I was in a lot of theater plays. I did acting and singing as well as playing in bands. I was always, you know, um, so I, yeah. I would say at a certain point, I was doing is I was doing a lot of school plays and I was also playing in bands at the same time. I did music for school plays, you know, I was mixing, all in the performing arts, you know, and my sisters were also going into it, albeit in a different genre, they were going into, my sister was going into opera Mm -hmm. at the time. So there was always a sense of, I mean, it was clearly, she's seven years older than I am, so even though I wasn't in the same field, it was just, you know, going into being a performer. Right. I could see how excited she was when she got her first gigs. So that was an encouragement. And I could see that you could do it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, not that I didn't know it was going to be a struggle. And certainly I was told it was going to be a real struggle. And I could have, with my grades and my degree, I could, you know, I, I, I kind of made sure that I could get a, a good straight job if I, if yeah, I, I wanted to. to. Right. What's it, your degree in? It ended up being in music, but it's, oh, okay. it's a BA. Right, right. So it's, it's a liberal arts degree. Sure. Um, and so I thought, well, with the degree from Harvard, you know, I, at that point, I, you know, I could walk into a Wall Street firm if I wanted to do that. And so part of it was like, that's my insurance policy. Not that I ever wanted to do that, mm-hmm. but I know that if I'm in a situation where I'm, I just know that it's just like a psychological exit, like psychological right. backdoor. It was like, I don't have to be doing this. I could be doing something else, and that gives me a little mental space. Right. So I really, I'm doing this because I really, really want it, because it's my soul.
0: I'm choosing to do this. I'm
1: choosing to do this. I mean, I, mean, I worked with a lot of other people who, uh, it, this was the only choice for them. Like, I, they, they, you know, people that didn't necessarily have um, a degree. Some people didn't. I worked with a lot of people that didn't even go to college. Mm-hmm. Nothing against that at all. But right. I'm not saying I was superior to those in any way. Right, no, people. I get it's what you're not saying. A superior, But it was like, I felt like I had a lot of options in life and right. I could do this if I wanted to and I could always get out of it. If, right. I, if I really think this is not for me anymore, I can go turn around and get a job right. somewhere else. At least in my mind, I thought I could do that. Sure. Um, so that's one way I dealt with it. You know, I said, okay, well, but this, you know, every year I would say to myself, do I, do I suddenly not want to do this anymore? Right. No, I think I want to stay with this. This is good. This is, I mean, not that it hasn't been difficult, but I set myself up so that, um, you know, I had an apartment with in Hoboken with low rent. Mm-hmm. It was really close to New York, and so it was easy to get into gigs, and um, there was a music scene in Hoboken at the time, right. believe it or not. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so um, that was part of... What, that, that just became what I'm doing. You know, I, I got into a band right after college that had a major label deal. And we um, were on Warner Brothers. And so that became what I'm doing after college. Right. Like, I'm going to be in a band and, and uh, make a record and go on tour and see what happens. And that was that was the extent of the plan. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was like, and we'll see. And then know? we'll
0: figure out what happens after that. Right.
1: And a lot of the band ended up, the band didn't make it. But uh, the members of the band, some of them were uh, pretty well-connected New York studio guys. Mm-hmm. And so they recommended me for some of my first studio gigs. Oh, great. So I got commercials and I got, you know, indie records and other things. I got record, You know, I got the usual mix of studio gigs Right. that. Um, so, um, yeah, what can I say? I mean, I, I kind of adapted to the, you know, New York has got certain, st- I don't know how, if you've sensed this, but New York's got a couple of musical undercurrents going mm-hmm. on, the history of New York behind it. There's, on one hand, there is the, like the Brill building, the songwriter, the commercial, like that, that still exists somewhere. A lot of those people are doing commercials now, mm-hmm. or were doing commercials. A lot of that music business died out in the 90s and 2000s. But it, there's still some remnant of it there. There's the folk scene that started in the '60s, mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of acoustic singer-songwriters coming up that want records done. Right. Even now, New York-based, you know, they, they the sound has changed, but they're still like coming from this folk background. Mm-hmm. And there's punk rock. There's still the indie bands that are wanting to do stuff, and they still need keyboard players. Although they may not hire me to be in their band, they still right. want some cool keyboard parts on their records. Sure. So, that's been sort of the building blocks of my work since I've been here. Mm -hmm. you know new york that is um um so i don't know as far as when it became a career it just it i kind of had the feeling i was going to do it all through college right and then when i got this when i got this gig with this major label band that just sealed the deal for me i guess and ever since then it's just been a, a little mental check every year. Do I still want to keep doing this? Right, and I still do. Right, so, so keep you know, <laughs> doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does that answer your question? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay. And especially we're, we'll go into it a little bit more. But you know, every year you say you do this mental check, and over the last year you've been playing with John Mayer, so I'm sure that was like that, that helped sway your decision heavily.
1: Uh, it wasn't even a decision. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> and
0: we'll, I, we'll I want to get into the to the John Mayer stuff. Uh, in a minute, but I have a couple more questions about about actually bridging that gap and, and making it a career. What advice do you have for people that are that are coming up or that you know have been playing for years and they really want to try to make a career out
1: of this? Well, um, be honest with yourself about how much talent you have, and that's that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And 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 so you know if your talent. Is, there's a lot of people want to be musicians. Not all of them have enough talent. That's not to be mean to anybody. But some people's talents lie elsewhere. They may discover it. Some people end up being in some other part of the music business besides being a, an artist or a performer because they realize they're really good at business or something. They're, so they, really, they end up being managers or something like I don't know. But if you really feel that your talent is in the playing, in the performing or the writing or the singing, or the producing, mm-hmm. then double down on your investment, like whatever you know, invest in yourself, you know, and totally believe in yourself. If you can really be honest and look yourself in the eye and say you've got the talent, then invest in yourself and uh, and don't uh, don't let anything really discourage you. Even though it can be very discouraging, it can't. Things can be very discouraging mm-hmm. sometimes, you know. Um,
0: can you unpack that a little bit yeah. about the saying, double down and invest in yourself?
1: Well, I don't just mean buying gear. Right. I mean, yeah, buy the gear you need. You know, right. If you're a drummer, you know, buy the set of drums that you love. Buy the drums that, you, that, even if it's not practical to take it on a gig, I would say buy the drum set of your dreams. If you have room for it, if you can find the space and practice on it and get so damn good that you can play on any drum kit that you get offered and play like that. You know, make right. you know, learn how to make the magic of your drumming happen. Right. That's right. On, on you know, and,
0: you know the speaking to that a lot of people don't well some people realize but some people that have, haven't toured and used backline companies and stuff before, you yeah. know, sometimes you get to the gig and whatever drum kit whatever drum kit is provided, it could be you know, sad. It's going to it could be really really sad. Yeah. You know, I've played in some situations where oh, yeah. it's like, "Oh yeah, backlines provided." You get to the venue and it's crap. Yeah. You know, and you still have to tune it up and make it sound good. And I'm sure you've done you've dealt with the same with organs too. Right.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, believe me. I got to know all the rental Hammond organs all over the country from various touring situations. And sometimes you don't get a real one. Sometimes you you know. But um so like I wanted I got a Hammond organ, I got a a B three, um about 15 years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no gigs that would allow me to, they even had the cartage at that time. I couldn't even get the cartage to play it on a gig. Right. But I bought it because I wanted to have one and learn how to really play it. And then I took gigs where I, I, I took one, there was one gig that I took, I won't mention what it was, but I took it because they were providing me with a Hammond and i would get to tour and i would i was guaranteed like i think 90 percent of the gigs or something i had a real hammock. nice and i took it basically to get my chops Mm -hmm. on that so you just find a way man life will throw you an opportunity to do something you never know where it's going to come from to make it work it's it's a little bit of a chancy thing you know it's like you might get an opportunity what's your favorite drum kit
0: my favorite drum kit
1: do you have one particular kit that you love that's like your
0: uh, probably some sort of Craviato drum kit. Okay. And they're like 15 grand or 10 All grand right. or whatever, you
1: know. Maybe you'll. Uh, do you have one?
0: I don't. I don't.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, maybe you'll get one. Maybe some, at some point you'll meet the guy. Maybe you know the guy already. Maybe he'll, you know, I don't know. Right. But maybe you'll have the opportunity to use one, even if you don't own it. You know? Right. right, maybe, right. Or something like that. Like, when I say invest, I mean, that's the equipment side of things. Mm-hmm. Like, invest in the tools you need. And that means, you know, the things that inspire you the most. Right. So, and also invest in yourself, like taking lessons, listening to music all the time, living and breathing, making sure you have enough time. That's hard if you, you know, if you if you can't make a living. I understand. You know, people have to get day jobs, and stuff like that. Um, day jobs were, t- you know, I've, I I haven't had a day job in over 20 years. Right. And uh, glad to say that. It took it took a lot of life out of me Mm -hmm. um, when I had one, and um, so I would say, you know, do whatever it takes to be playing music all the time. So at least you're not too far away from music. Keep music close to you. Mm -hmm. Um, That's part of the investment. That means you may not uh, make as steady a paycheck as you would like for a while, and that's hard. Right. You know, I know that that's not easy. It's not easy for your relationships. It's not easy for your overall finances, you know, those are the sacrifices that sometimes people have to make. But if you're going to make those sacrifices anyway, you might as well get what you want. You might as well when you actually get to play your instrument, have it be the instrument of your dreams. Right. And play it and practice it and get really good, and then somehow some some way, hopefully something will break your way and you'll be ready. You know, because, right. and you'll, you know, I mean, I will say that if I hadn't done all of that, then I wouldn't have been ready for John Mayer. Right. When John Mayer, you know, I mean, John Mayer saw some of the things I had done online. He had seen some of the shows that I did uh, on YouTube or whatever, and had listened to some musical examples of things, and had seen some of my influences. I wouldn't have known about those influences if I hadn't studied. Right. And I don't mean in school. I mean, I did study music. I got a degree in music, but I certainly didn't learn uh, R&B records in, at Harvard. Right. You know? Right. I listened to a lot of... I, I took some gigs where the main thing I got out of it was the, the, the other cats in the band were really musically knowledgeable. Right. And I just listened and absorbed what they had to offer. Mm-hmm. And so, and I always uh, worked with people that were doing bigger gigs than I was. Right. So I just figured some of that will rub off on me. Sure. I'll be the one guy with the least qualifications, with the, the least impressive resume in the whole band. And, but. Just by watching these guys and working with them hopefully some of their habits will rub off on me Mm -hmm. and so that's part of the investment when i say that it's also like associate yourself with people who are doing what you want to be doing right um and learn from them and just be humble and and take in all the information you can i don't know what else could i say i like the fact
0: that, that you said not to interrupt you i love the fact that you said hanging out with people and playing with people that are at a higher level than you are. You know, it's yes. like the old saying, if you're the, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need, you're in the wrong room. Right. right? And, and so these people push you to be better. They push you to learn more music. They push you to perform. Because I know that you've probably been in this situation, and I know I have, where I was the best player on the bandstand, yes. and I feel like I play like crap. Right. You know, because you play to the level of people, whoever you're playing with. So if you're playing with all these people that you feel like are pushing you, and you're like man i I'm playing better than I've ever played because everybody's pushing you and, and that's extremely important as far as I'm concerned you know to be with the, like and like you said, playing with people that are playing higher profile gigs or people that are at a different level than you at a higher level
1: yeah I had you know early on, I had a sort of like when I was about fourteen, you know I had studied classical music from when I was early childhood um I had taken some. I had taken some jazz lessons. I had met some jazz musicians, and I had learned some fundamental stuff about jazz piano. And I was already playing in a few rock bands. So I was like, I got a finger in classical, a finger in jazz, a finger in rock. What am I going to do with my? I was like, I have to pick something. I'm 14 years old already. You know, <laughs> right, right, I, like, right. I have to pick. I got to make a
0: decision. I need yeah, to make a right. decision.
1: What kind of musician I am going to be? You know, which path will I choose? I mean, with classical music, it's actually a reality. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to be a virtuoso classical musician, I mean, it really helps to start young. Right. You know, it really goes against you if you don't. But I kind of knew I wasn't going to do classical music by that point, anyway. Um, So it was either jazz or rock, really, and um, I didn't know where I was going to go. I mean, I just said, well, I thought it was like, you know, jazz musicians, there's a lot of jazz educators that can be very opinionated, Mm -hmm. and they have a low opinion of rock, you know, um, and I thought, well, all right, I either have, have to keep pleasing these people, or I have to, you know, be in with the rockers. And um, but then when I got to when I got to Harvard, I did a summer at Berkeley, mm-hmm. and I ended up studying. It ended up being as an adjunct to my Berkeley studies. I took piano, uh, improv lessons with Mike Matheny, nice, who is a trumpeter. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was about learning how to solo in jazz, learning how to do jazz. Is, Jazz improv is what it was, and um, he taught me licks and he made me work hard. And he told me at the end of my lessons with him, he said, "You've improved about a thousand percent since I started." And he said, um, "And I'd been playing with a rock band. I hadn't gotten any jazz gigs. I wasn't really. I didn't. I wasn't qualified to, to do a a real straight ahead date at that right. point." Um, and he said, "You've been gigging." I can tell you, you're playing like you've been gigging. And I said, yeah, you know, I've been playing rock and R&B. He's like, yeah, but you've been gigging. I can see it in the way you carry yourself and the way you play, that you've been playing out. And keep that up and you're gonna be smoking. That's what he said to me. Nice. Which was great encouragement. Sure. Mike Matheny said, I'm gonna be smoking one day. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so that, but my, my point being that I realized that it transcended genre. Right, that it was like jazz, rock, whatever it is, play, get yourself, get some playing under your belt, Mm -hmm. is the most important thing. Absolutely. And if the gigs come in rock, if you're getting rock gigs, then do rock gigs. If you're getting jazz gigs, do jazz gigs. Whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, So anyway, that's where was. was, Am I am I still answering your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is loose, man. This is loose. Keep it loose. Okay. (laughs) So I
0: I always like to get. The, the viewpoint from other musicians. So, I, you know, I've interviewed bass players, and, right. and, and for you as an, as an organ player and as a piano player, mm-hmm. what do you look for in drummers? And what advice do you have for drummers to play with other musicians? Because I always say, drummers always play for other drummers. So they're always like, check out this cool lick. And it's like, you know, and like, look at all these 30 second notes that I worked out. And nobody gives a shit about that except other drummers in the room. And I always try to stress that you want to play things that are, you want to play your employable skills, you know, you want to play your employable things. Um, So what do you look for in a drummer, and and what would you advise drummers to do?
1: Well, I'm trying to think in terms of drummers versus just what do I look for in another musician, period, Mm -hmm. of any instrument. Um, Listening is number one. I mean, do they listen? Do they li- now? Speaking egotistically a little bit, do they listen to me? You right. know, if I play some cool left-hand pattern, uh, which is kind of in a similar range to where the bass is doing, what the bass is doing, or so- or the guitar in that range, is the drummer going to respond mm-hmm. to what I'm doing? I mean, if they do, if I'm playing some, you know, it can be any, it it can be any context, but if the drummer plays something that's in response to what I'm doing, I get a huge kick out of that, right? Because not just yay, somebody listened to me. Um, somebody likes my idea, somebody you know, but it just it's um, if, as long as if they're really good, which they would be, um, they don't drop the groove or anything just to play. Something along with <laughs> right. me, if the right. groove, if it's the, if it enhances the groove and it's it takes it in a cool new direction nobody saw it coming.
0: Right. And and it has to be tasteful. They can't be like chasing your tail on night. No,
1: not chasing the tail. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking a higher level, a certain level of musicianship here. Right. But if uh, and I I've had wonderful moments when I felt like at least for a moment I was part of the rhythm section mm-hmm. when because bass players and drummers do that all the time. They play off of each other. Great rhythm sections are always playing off each other's ideas. If I can throw an idea into the bag with the bassist and the drummer, and the drummer responds as he or she might to the bassist, then I feel like I'm part of the rhythm section now, and I get to hang out here with you guys. You know, right? Um, You're not I the outcast, feel, right? And <laughs> you know, and then you know, ten seconds later, I'm back playing pads, mm-hmm. and I'm the I'm the icing on the cake. But for a little while, especially if I'm playing piano. Um, Sometimes I will do something that a, a really uh, sensitive drummer will pick up on, and it feels like an amazing validation. Like, I had a good idea that made it through the bass player drummer screen. Right. Like, those guys <laughs> have this little insular world of their own that, you know, they're holding everything down. They're the engine room, you know? And I got an idea that they picked up on, I, I feel pretty good for the night, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like... Um, so I love when, when drummers specifically respond to things that I, you know, that's really fun as, as long as it, you know, and I, it's all based on our good taste. Right. We all have good enough taste that, it's, that it serves the song. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if it's musically valid, it's not like a complete left turn that totally sends the whole thing, you know, as long as the, the groove keeps going and it's fun, if it's a little surprising, that's great, you know, everyone right. else sort of per- turns their head and go, wow, what was that, you know? I love interacting with drummers that mm-hmm. way. I love when they interact. I love. Uh, I try to play off of what they're doing. I, tr- you know, if if the drummer, um, like sometimes I can, you know, I have certain. Sometimes you can just anticipate with certain drummers. You know when they're gonna, like I know certain drummers. Uh, you know when you play with them long enough, you know when they, the kinds of surprising, idea that might be surprising to, to, to the audience, right. but you've, you've played enough gigs with them, you know when they're going to suddenly go to triplets or something right. in the middle of a four group, um, and if I can I anticipate that and play some triplets at the same time that they do, then that's I when feel like, back. yeah, bullseye. Lightning know?
0: in a bottle, man.
1: Lightning in a bottle. Sometimes I can just get the, I can look at the drummer and see when he's, I, all right, I know he's about to do a triplet fill on the toms, and I'll play ba-da-da-da, Da, 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 da and right. it's perfect. Yeah, and yeah. when that happens, those are like, those are great moments. Um, I definitely have done that with Aaron. Mm-hmm. I've done that with Steve Holly. Do you know Steve? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I he used to with, play with uh, Wings, right? He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Um, and uh, Chris Parker, another. You know Chris? I don't know Chris. You should interview Chris. Done. Chris Parker <laughs> was a member of Stuff, if you know Stuff. Ah, oh,
0: what did he? He was a drummer for stuff.
1: Yeah, he would. Well, after Steve. Gadd. I was gonna
0: say because Steve Guy was a drummer. Yeah,
1: for... there was different combinations of stuff. He was right. in that mix. He played on some Steely Dan stuff. He did. You know, he's done a lot. He's played on Dylan. He toured with Dylan. Uh, really? He's a yes. He's a major, major force, and probably slightly, slightly overlooked these days. I will. You should look. look him up. You should look him up. He is one of the. He is one of the top five drummers I've ever played with. Awesome, and I include the other two in that: Steve Holly and Aaron Sterling yeah. in that in the, in those top five. Um, um, but I but Chris and I have had some amazing interactions. Um, we we used to play at this club in Harlem, um, backing up this sort of this house band, backing up a couple of uh, gospel singers and R and B singers, mm-hmm. and we just had this sort of very casual, uh, you know. Uh, once a week gig at this place called Creole up in, in uh, East Harlem, and we had so much fun. We were kind of in the stuff mode, like everybody. At one point, I played with Gordon Edwards. Nice. Um, but we—it was kind of anybody that was sort of tangentially related to stuff uh, would play, and we did some of those tunes. We did some Cornell Dupree tunes. We did um, a lot of stuff, but stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but but but. Chris could. Chris and I we used to go off and we could do whatever we wanted on the gig. It was a total. It was total free form, and we just went into never like out or anything. But we just we just took things in totally unexpected directions. Um, and we do that. And Aaron and I do that a little bit with John too. Like mm-hmm. John encourages the band to stretch out. Have you seen? I was seen, gonna ask. Have you seen any? Have you seen John Mayer?
0: I I I've, I've said this numerous times, so all the listeners know that like. I'm I'm a John Mayer fanatic because like yeah. I want that gig, uh-huh. so like okay. I really do. Like I keep telling everybody, and like I'm not lying, I really want. to, so, like I kind of study a lot of the John Mayer okay. stuff, <laughs> like embarrassingly to say it, but I do. Like I like I know all the tunes, like I've every song written out, everything. Okay. Like just so yes, I've watched a lot of a lot of John Mayer stuff. I've seen some stuff with you guys. Okay. Um, I've watched you know all the stuff with Keith Carlock and all the stuff with Steve Jordan and everything, so like yeah sure.
1: Well, uh, on Queen of California, um, mm-hmm. there's a piano solo at the end, and I'm John told me when I first started the gig, he said, "Take this in any direction. This is your, you tell your story, whatever story you want to tell. You, this, you know, just take it where you want to take it at right. that point. And it's really just a one chord groove. It's a, it's on a B7 chord. It's mm-hmm. just a long B7 chord." Um, But Aaron plays a big role in that too, because you know he'll pick up on. I'll come up with some, you know. I'm always trying to take it somewhere different on tour. I don't want to tell the same story every night, so um, I will. I reach into my bag of tricks and I try to find something that's just that will be surprising and fun and cool, and you know, and um, and it's great when and and Aaron is right there with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's great when he. You know, I'll come up with a rhythm. You know, usually it's something three against four, or some kind of weird Latin thing, or it can be almost anything. Um, and he's there with me, so that's one of my that's one of my f- like most fun moments as a player mm-hmm. in that gig, when I get to do that. And sometimes John will just throw me a solo. He'll just point at me right. and say it was not part of the arrangement, but I want you to just go and do something. Right. And that's always fun. And like I said, it, it, Aaron's, when Aaron plays, Aaron is an equally adept programmer as he is a player, and, it effect, and, and the way he plays, it's like he takes the best bits of electronica mixed with Elvin Jones right. or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like he's playing something, and it's like he—it's like a drum pattern, and it, it, and he it like you hit the mute button, no snare, but the rest of the groove is still going, but no snare. And then it's back in, almost like he turned off the mute button. Right. That's part of his solo thing. And then he does these jazz, you know, these like, you know, Tony Williams things or whatever. You know, I can't really, it, it's different every night. Right. But the bag that he draws from is deep. Mm-hmm. And it includes everything right up to the present because he plays on hit records. And I love that. He's got so many ideas and they're all great, you know. I, you know, he's, he's a great guy to play with. Nice. Um... Hi, Aaron if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> but uh all right so did i answer your question you did <laughs> oh, okay
0: you did and you know I, I always like to hear how you know how much freedom people have because sometimes you know you'll talk to people that are playing on bigger tours where they're like there's zero freedom it's like i play the tune and that's it and there's nothing outside of that box and then, you know, with you, you're like, oh, we have, you know, we have a little bit more freedom, which is...
1: A little bit more freedom. Right. I would say we have a lot of freedom for a band that tours at that level. Yes. Right. We have a lot of freedom by comparison. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, we got to play the parts. Right. And we have to serve the songs. We can't make it about us ever. It's mm-hmm. always about John. If John says, Andy, play a solo, or Zane play a solo, or Doug, play a solo, or Aaron, play a solo. Aaron plays some amazing drum breaks at the beginning of waiting on the world to change. Mm-hmm. Um, But then it gets into the song, and it's the hit song, and so we're playing the song, you know. So, of course, it's about the songs, Mm -hmm. and it's about John. That's the main thing. But given that restriction, there's a lot of freedom there. So, it's really cool.
0: (laughs) Now, you had mentioned off-air, we were talking a little bit about how that gig came about. And most people, when they hear that somebody got a a higher-level gig, like the John Mayer gig, it's normally like, oh yeah, well I was you know, I just got the call one day and that's how it happened. But there's always all these things that happen before that phone call comes through. Right. So can you kind of just walk us through that story a little bit? How the how the John Mayer gig came about and the events that lead up to that, because most people, like I said, it's just like, oh yeah, well the call came in and I got the gig. Right. And everybody's like, Well, how do I get those calls? How does how did things like that happen?
1: Yeah, well, it was from it was uh what i've heard some people refer to as the magic phone call Mm -hmm. i mean so i did just get a call you know i mean it was really like at the moment that it i got the call it was you know obviously just a call out of the blue um but the the storyline is that uh the gig was originally uh held by chuck lavelle Mm -hmm. and he, he had played on john's record Born and Raised and he had done some other stuff with John as well Um, and he was his guy um, and they were supposed to tour in 2012 and um, then John developed uh, the granuloma on his larynx and he was unable to sing and the whole tour got postponed while he recuperated and so it was postponed into 2013 and Chuck was unavailable because he was working with the Stones that year. So um, he then turned to Chuck Lavelle and asked if he could recommend anyone. And um, Chuck turned to, hi- he was rehearsing with the Stones at the time when, the call, when, he, when that came in. And so he turned to Tim Reese, who was, you know, who's a sax player and second keyboard player with the Stones, if he knew, and asked him if he knew anybody. And I had toured with Tim with uh, Rufus Wainwright in the year 2012. So I had gotten to know Tim and become friends with him. And, um, and so Tim recommended me. And then what he did was he, he called me out of the blue. I hadn't spoken to him in quite some time since he had left the Rufus tour. And um, uh, I got a call from out of the blue. And uh, you know, so he just said, listen, I'm calling you about a gig. You know, And he just told me the whole situation. He said, is, is John Mayer something you'd be interested in? And I said, yeah, of course, I <laughs> right. love John Mayer. And so, he said, "Okay, uh, then I'll I'll give your info to Chuck." And I said, "Great, thanks." And then I didn't hear anything for like ten days, or so. I, can't, I think it was about. 10, it might have been ten days. It was a it, it was a long time. I was now. gonna say
0: that is that is that a long ten days too?
1: Well, you know, I I'd had almost there's a lot of almosts in in this business, right? And I had had a few almosts with various name acts mm-hmm. before, and so. I never, I never get surprised when something doesn't happen. Right. You, you get your name in the ring and you hope, and but you don't get your hopes up too high because it's like you just got to keep going the next thing. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so you don't get too disappointed when things don't work out. Um, so it, it had been, it had been, I, it, I think it was ten days, and I hadn't heard word one. So I figured, you know, someone else got that gig. Right. You know, um, you know I figured there's tons of people. In LA, who would who would be right there? Who would get the gig? You know? mm-hmm. And then at uh, then at seven o'clock one morning, I woke up and I saw an email, and it was from Mayor's tour manager. And so, you know, I I elbowed my wife. I said, uh, <laughs> "Hey, honey, I just got this email from John Mayor's tour manager." <laughs> So I, you know, so that was the start of it. Nice. And so I found out the backstory that they had somebody that they hadn't been happy with. Mm-hmm. So um, that was how that came about. And then basically, uh, I just talked to the tour manager, and then I talked to John for about twenty minutes on the phone. And I guess I passed that audition, and mm-hmm. then I was hired. You know, so um, it was it. By the time I became actually involved. It was like 90 percent of the way there i just had to not screw it up right basically right. <laughs> you know um so yeah i mean uh, they, they had seen look, john had seen some of my stuff on youtube he had when he got my name he looked on youtube and he saw me with rufus and some other people robert plant
2: did mm-hmm. a
1: show with and uh, and you know saw my web page my nord endorsement and he saw some of my influences and he just you know, he. I guess he liked what he saw, and, he, and so, you know, I just had to talk to him, and he basically asked me to come out, and then we worked out the money, and I was, and I was in. Cool. Yeah. So that's how it happened, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But when I thought about it afterwards, I realized how many things had to happen that were completely out of my control. Right. You know, like if John had never had the uh, the problem with his larynx, I would never. Have got, I would never. Have even been asked it, would have, it wouldn't have been it would have been Chuck mm-hmm. you know uh, many there are at least three or four other factors in there that I had no control over right before it ever got to me so that's I think par for the course with anybody who gets a gig like that when they say the call came in the call came in because maybe 12 other things happened that you never even know about
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: you know that led to your name finally making it to the top of the list You know, and the only thing you can do is just go out there and, like, I met, I worked with Tim. I had no idea that Tim was going to lead to anything, that that, that you make a hundred connections like that. You meet a hundred different people on gigs, and you leave them with a good impression of you. Right. And maybe out of that hundred, maybe one or two of them are going to lead you to something really good. Or maybe one out of 200. Sure. It may never happen. Mm -hmm. You may almost get a lot of things, and, you know... But what can you do except uh, get as good as you can and enjoy the ride while you're there? And if you're only playing small gigs or medium gigs, you enjoy those and you still, you know, go home happy. Mm-hmm. You know, wake up in the morning happy with what you have to do that day. You know, what else? You know, what else can you do? You Absolutely. have no control. A lot. Of, my point is, a lot of it is really out of your control. Mm-hmm. You can only control the things you can control, which is how well you play how well you get along with people and how good of a vibe you give people. Mhm. And how reliable are you and those you just do your best on those and hopefully something happens for
0: you. I'm a firm yes. believer that the cream always rises to the top though. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're not putting yourself out there and you're not, you know, you're not cool to work with or you're late or you're right. a jerk or well then no, you're not going to get hired and you know you're not going to get and there's a lot of a lot of really good gigs between you know playing at a dive bar and playing with John Mayer, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of people that make really have really good careers playing at mid to higher level things. Right. And and all those gigs come from just putting yourself out there, you know. That's so right. if you weren't doing all that stuff, that like you said, that's the stuff that you can control.
1: Yeah. You know? And let me add uh, the way I got, you know, I met Tim through doing Rufus Wainwright. tour with rufus which was a wonderful tour i love rufus to death he's great um but i got that tour from a connection from uh rufus's md was a guy named brad albetta who i had worked with like 10 years previously and hadn't really done an awful lot with in the preceding 10 years and he remembered me 10 years later for this so i have him to thank as well um and so but here's the thing i had no idea that you know when i was doing s- sessions with him and a few gigs i had no idea that 10 years later he was going to call me up for a tour that for a world tour with a major artist like rufus and then that that was going to lead to john mayer i had no right, right. idea there was no way you could have predicted any of that mhm you know so but that, and again for 10 years i hardly heard from him or saw him you know, it wasn't like we were working together all the time. Right, right. And he was hooking up his buddy. He just remembered me. Mm-hmm. So I left a good, a good enough impression with him ten years before.
0: That definitely speaks volumes to your playing and your professionalism, and just like you said, the vibe that you put out—that these people can remember that after ten years. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, like I said, that's so that's what one has control over. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you want to get better gigs, that's you know, you just do the best you can on. You know, make every gig that you do. You give your all to, and you just try to be all around happy and happy in what you're doing, and hap- be be a happy person. You know,
0: that's good advice. Yeah. So, if people want to learn more about you and other things that you're that you're doing, where can they go?
1: Well, um, I don't have a .dot com website okay. at this point. Um, I mean, you can always follow me on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, and you know my my artist page at Nord has. No, I got that I have to update that now um, but yeah you can follow me there uh, that's probably you know probably uh, yeah f- Facebook and my nord page okay are probably the best way to reach me I'm working on a CD of my own right now which I've never done I've never done my own awesome I've never led my own band and I've what never, kind
0: of what kind of stuff are you doing
1: um it's well the stuff it's gonna be a lot of different things but it's gonna it, it bridges a lot of things between um, there's an organ instrumental side to it, there is an orchestrated pop side to it. Um, I also have some stuff that I play guitar on. So it, it's as I, as I said, it's um, I'm pretty ambitious for it to be my first CD, but, <laughs> but I've had a lot of years of experiences, but um, I'll know, you know, stay tuned, let's right. put it that way. Good. But, I'm, but I'm doing, I'm demoing songs right now and I'm working with some people. Uh, on on recording right now so cool. it's, it's 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 on the it's on the burner right now it may come awesome. out by the end of the year we'll see great so
0: well Andy thank you so much for doing this man I, I appreciate it happy to find out that we're neighbors that's pretty that's that's cool awesome too, that's so. totally cool I uh I definitely appreciate you doing this I know the listeners appreciate it as well man we'll have to we'll have to do this again
1: absolutely cool anytime thanks brother
0: There you have it, Mr. Andy Burton, and you can learn more about Andy on his Nord page, his Nord artist page, and also on Facebook, and you can reach him on Twitter at Andy Burton Music, and I'll list all of his links and everything in the show notes page, that'll be drummersresource.com forward slash session 42, and I'll have all his information on there, like I said. And if you want to win that Boss for Splash Symbol, eight-inch Splash Symbol, just sign up for the Drummer's Resource mailing list at drummersresource.com and you'll automatically be entered to win it. Be sure to check us out, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, on Twitter at drummersrsource, and Instagram at drummersresource. And until next week, keep on drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. You all know that. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.